This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the Asia Briefing. My name is Tom Starrick. Today we've got a two-part deep dive on Thailand, a mixture of politics and Pattaya. I'll be joined by two of my colleagues from the South China Morning Post Asia Desk, Bhavan Pragas and Megan Tobin. Bhavan Pragas is going to be helping us make sense of the country's chaotic election season, which was completely transformed when Princess Ubalratana, the older sister of the king, entered the race to become the country's next prime minister, only for her candidacy to be blocked by her brother only a matter of hours later. Thailand has been riven by factional infighting for the best part of 20 years, in which time there have been two coups, deposing Thaksin Shinawatra and then his sister, Ying Luck. Since then, a military junta has been in power. The Thai politics is uniquely chaotic and unpredictable, but we're going to try to make sense of it as we look forward to the election on March 24th. And then we'll head south to Pattaya, the Thai resort city renowned for its sex industry. But we've got a different take on it after hanging out with members of the city's highly visible Russian community. Over several glasses of vodka and bowls of borscht, we found that Pattaya is actually a lovely place to raise a family, despite its well-earned reputation as one giant red light district. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. So it's been a crazy week in Thai politics. It all kicked off about a week ago when Princess Ubaratana declared her candidacy that she was going to run also for the prime ministership. It loomed as a transformational moment in Thai politics, but it lasted only a matter of hours before her brother, the king, vetoed her candidacy. Bhavan, you've been you've been following this story all week. Can you try and help us make sense of it? Where do we stand now with the election on March 24, just weeks away? Tom, we are now at uh, February 14, uh, about six days ago. Uh, February 8, Princess Uboratana Rajakanya announced that she would uh, run for the prime ministership in the March 24 elections. Of course, as you mentioned, uh, King uh, Mahavajira Longkorn immediately, almost immediately, 12 hours later, vetoed that that uh, that move. What we have right now is a precarious uh, position for the pro-Taksin forces, uh, which uh, nominated uh, Princess Ubal Ratana. Uh, today, we had uh, the, the Constitutional Court uh, rule that uh, it would hear a case on whether to dissolve the party that had uh, nominated the princess. Uh, again, this speaks to just how taboo it was for the party and for the pro-Taksin forces to have uh, nominated a royal to be prime minister. It had always been convention that the country's revered monarchy stood above politics, and this was quite unprecedented. Totally unprecedented, yeah. Yeah. we should say. For a royal to be involved in Thailand's electoral Certainly, politics yeah. Yeah. like that was a, was unheard of, and that's why it was such a significant moment in Thai politics. Bhavan, can you break this down for us? Who is Thaksin Shinawatra and who in Thailand is aligned with this party and who's aligned with the current ruling military junta? I think we have to go back 20 years for that. Uh, mm. So in, for the past 20 years, Thailand has been mired in essentially a political standoff. On one side, our forces loyal to Thaksin Shinawatra, a former police chief turned billionaire telecom tycoon. Uh, in the early 2000s, he decided to stand for elections on a populist uh, platform, you know, with the support of uh, the country's uh, rural masses. And he, you know, stormed to power. 
in elections in 2001 he was in power for six, for five years until 2006 but he was all him and and the people around him were always kind of uh, hated by the establishment elite right uh, they were seen as uh, taksin was seen as someone uh, who in some in some quarters people thought he was anti royal he was anti elite uh and people you know accused him of cronyism and corruption and all that so he was deposed in 2006 but his movement has been so powerful right winning every election over the past 20 uh two decades uh i think they've had like five six elections since 2001 and every of those elections have been won by parties aligned to him the red he, shirts the red, red shirt shirts, movement yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh so we have had he, after he was deposed uh, his brother in law became prime minister for a brief period and then 2011 to 2014 his sister yingluck shinawatra was prime minister she too was deposed by a coup by the uh, pro establishment military and uh, the current junta chief uh, prayut chanocha has been uh, uh, you know at the apex of power since then and he today is running as prime minister with uh, with the pro junta party for the march 24 elections and prayut as it stands is the uh, favorite to continue as prime minister but but taksin is not going anywhere uh, he remains an incredibly potent uh, political force and uh, the singular most polarizing figure in Thai politics i would say in the last 50 years and it's worth noting that that 2011 election where ying luck was elected and she became prime minister that was the last election uh, in, in thailand 8 years ago um, but where does this leave us now in the campaign bavan you you mentioned that there are parties aligned with the shinawatras but also aligned with the 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 military junta I mean is it essentially a, a contest between these various proxies and then smaller I guess independent parties sort of trying to squeeze in between the gaps at the same time I think you're right I think we can simplify it into two sides one pro establishment with the support of the military the other side you know backed by uh the country's rural northeast you know and north you know the the what they call the Isan province uh, influenced by Laos where we are right now i think uh, the key development as far as the elections go is the fact that the party that had nominated princess uburatana now faces imminent dissolution it is the second biggest party in taksin's movement and the main party pretai party had not contested in some seats because you know they had given way to this party the tyraksa chart party and now those plans are in disarray as that the as the party that nominated the princess faces dissolution uh, the constitutional court will rule on 27 february whether or not that party has to be has has to be dissolved eh? but in all likelihood it will be dissolved and it will, it will put the carefully laid plans of the taksin block into disarray so bavan what does this mean that the princess had made the attempt to be involved with the tyroxa chart party what can we guess about the possible alignment or non-alignment of taksin's group with the royals i mean at this stage all of it is conjecture but we have had academics who you know have been theorizing based on very what the what little hints and suggestions there are out there uh, some academics say that princess uburatana had always shown what they call red proclivities basically inclination towards 
the the Taksin block. He she had always shown sympathy to 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 his cause, to the platform, to you know the pro poor policies, as opposed to you know supporting the yellow shirts who you know are the pro establishment military backed elite. Uh, so it came as no surprise to uh, these uh, long time Thai watchers that she decided to throw her, her head in the ring uh, to be prime minister. It does seem like a remarkable miscalculation by the the, the Shinawatra bloc to, to try and enter into this sort of grand bargain with the princess and have it backfire so spectacularly. It's, you know, Tuxin is a, a smart guy. He's very calculated. It's amazing to me that this that he allowed this to occur and have it have it backfire so so badly. Tom, again, this is, you know, we, we are in very opaque territory. We don't know what happened on 8th February because the party and the princess herself came out very confidently to announce the candidacy. And then late at night, the king issues a royal command, basically chastising his sister for, you know, breaching the constitution. Inappropriate, essentially. Yes. So we don't know whether he had uh, done a U-turn or he was out of the loop or if there were if there are other you know uh, players involved all of it is conjecture but again this is at the center of this saga right was the king involved what is his role in it uh, you know and uh, I, I guess the number one thing that it surfaces is that uh, we cannot run away from the well-known fact that the Thai royal court is a player in Thai politics. And it's, I guess it's one of the things that makes Thai politics both so unpredictable and so fascinating to, to cover and to talk about is that it's, it encourages a certain kind of speculation because, as you said, it is so opaque that we're unlikely to get the full story of what happened in that last week of the princess declaring her, her, her willingness to run and then having it vetoed by her brother. All we can really do is try to connect the dots and, and make, I guess, uh, there's a, an element of educated speculation that, that we're, we're forced to engage in, I suppose. Tom, let me add at this juncture, as you, you rightly point out, I think the another, another key element in all of this is that we are also dealing in, a environment, in an environment where you know, uh, there is something called Les Majes, a royal insult law. You don't know what are the limits of speculation that you know would breach uh, uh, the laws in, in, within within Thailand, for example. Journalists are, are very cautious in 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 making this in in indulging in this speculation and theorizing. So the, I think the the baseline of 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 how we report and comment on the situation is that we cannot run away from the fact that uh, we know that the, the palace has a hand in politics. I think it's. Uh, you know, based on, on, on hard evidence. But we cannot speculate beyond that as to, you know, who is involved or, you know, the level of involvement of the of the king or any of the other players in the royal court. Babin, I notice you choosing your words a little carefully here. Um, can you explain the Les Majest laws a bit, the royal insult law, and has it changed at all in the context of this election? That's right. I, uh, I think any commentator or any journalist in in this it covering uh, the Thai politics will be 
a little cautious whether we are based in Thailand or outside, right? Uh, we have seen in the past the currently ruling junta using the less majestic royal insult law quite liberally, basically, uh, you know, putting people behind bars or bringing charges against people for comments that uh, would otherwise not be seen as insulting or degrading. But so the, the, the threshold seems, the threshold is, is unclear. You don't know what is an insult, whether commentary is permissible. Uh, but I think the, the best way we deal with it is that we make our assumptions and our theorizing based on, on, on existing uh, academic works, analysis. And, you know, we don't indulge too much in the frivolous kind of uh, commentary. So if we could just pivot now a little bit, we did mention earlier that this is the first election in Thailand since 2011 when, when Ying Luck became Prime Minister. But what that means is you've got all these young Thais who have been denied the opportunity to vote until now, eight years. So you might have Thais who are 23, 24, 25 years old and they're first-time voters all coming online now, joining the electorate and voting for the first time. And we're going to hear some audio now from Jitsiri Tongnoi, who's our reporter on the ground in Bangkok. We'll hear from two Thai university students, one speaking Thai, one speaking English. I'm a little bit excited. I've never voted before and I'm still a bit confused as to what to do or where to go. I'm also not sure if the election will be postponed again because there's news here and there. I'm confused and a little bit concerned. I'm a Thai citizen and I want to perform my duty, although I'm not sure that things will get better after the poll. That's how I feel. I'm not sure because the political parties, as I've seen from when I was younger or when my parents went to vote, sometimes cannot do what they say they would or they don't achieve or become successful. Feels exciting that oh, this is the first time I have chance to get involved in the politics. I think it's new times of the political arena in Thailand because we uh, used to have for military regime that never uh, provide our rights and our present in Thai society and they do not deflect our uh, needs. So this time is the first time we can have the voice up that what we really need or not. Actually, I'm optimistic, but if I see on the reality, uh, because there's now the system of the election time they designed for serving the prolonged the military regime through the Senate appointment selection and the political election on proportional uh, votes that they designed for preserving only some particular parties to that related to the military regimes. So he's basically saying that the system is rigged to help the junta hold on to power. Is that right, Bobin? I mean, I can understand why he's saying that uh, very quickly. The, the current constitution under which the, the elections are being held was was enacted by the the junta, Prayut Chanucha's junta. So, uh, I mean, for example, just one way the system is 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 one sided is the is is the process by which the prime minister is picked. The prime minister has to be picked by both the upper and lower house. The the elections on March twenty four of a 500 lower house seats. But the prime minister will be picked by 
both both the 500 seat lower house and the upper house which has 250 senators and that upper house is fully stacked with military appointees so the upper house is not does not go undergo elections all of all of its members are picked by the military so basically it means uh the military you know already has a has an upper hand uh, it's got 250 votes for prime minister it just needs uh 126 to to uh, pick its prime its prime ministerial candidate and indeed we we've now got a second piece of audio you're going to hear from parrot chirawak who's the 20 year old president of the thai student union and he's got a particularly sobering assessment of what will happen in the upcoming election if it even goes ahead. I doubt if we're going to have an election. Rumor is running high about a counter-coup. If there's any political accident, there won't be an election. Thais will have to wait further. And even if there is an election, the dissolution case against the Thai Raksa Chart Party, forwarded to the Constitution Court by the Election Commission, shows that this election is not free and fair because the government exercises its authority to undermine a political opponent. Moreover, the junta is allowed to campaign early using state resources while prosecuting those with politically motivated charges. These show that a dictatorship supports itself, making this election unfree and unfair. If there is no election, I think the youth groups should go coordinate with other groups to call for an election by whatever means we can afford. Wow, so 7 million people voting for the first time in this election, that's equivalent to the entire population of Hong Kong. Um, Bavin, with so many of these young people on social media, and are you going to be watching Facebook super closely in this election? Thailand is the biggest user of Facebook in so in Southeast Asia, so I think it will be foolhardy to you know uh, write off looking at at social media. It's going to play a big part in uh, in in electioneering. Uh, we've already seen uh, Facebook and Twitter being used in the past few days as the princess uh, announced her candidacy and then rescinded it. Uh, Apart from Facebook, we also have, we also have Instagram. Uh, the princess is an avid user of Instagram. Uh, some hundred thousand users, uh, you know, on her account. Uh, Taksin is a big user of Facebook and Twitter. Now he's got a podcast. Prayut has a podcast also out on Twitter and on Facebook. So you know, social media is going to be big front and center. But let's not also forget that Thai elections have been won in its uh, rural areas northeast north uh, of the country where you know Thaksin's uh, uh, stronghold is that's where the, the rural masses are and that's where his red shirts get, tap, get their uh, political clout from so there will be a lot of door-to-door politics quite a bit of money politics as well you know both sides are indulging in it and we will be uh, on the ground in those areas in Ubon Ratchatani, in, in Chiang Mai, in Ubantani. And these are the places where, you know, uh, we'll see uh, strong red shirt support. But uh, I think the pro-junta parties are also trying to make inroads there. A lot of it with money. And so, Bhavan, you mentioned that you're going to be in Thailand in the run-up to the election. What, what are you going to be watching for? And what should, what should our listeners be watching for? You mentioned the red shirts. If this uh, pro-Tuxin party does end up getting dissolved, is it likely that we're going to see the red shirts take to the streets? I would be quite cautious in in, in, in making that, that that assumption. In 2014, when the coup happened, uh, there was expectations that Tuxin's uh, 
supporters would come into the city you know come into bangkok as they had done in the in the 2000s that did not happen uh, the military had uh, made the relevant and you know moves that that that, you know, that blocked that and and i think uh, the military has got a tight grip on the situation in those areas so i don't see the kind of mass protests uh, uh, of the mid 2000s happening uh but you know it's thailand we never know you know it's it's we have they've had two decades of 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 street demonstrations in bangkok and elsewhere and uh in over the last few days the the government has had to put down rumors that uh you know uh of a, of a, of a coup or of uprising and that there have been troop movements and all these things are just part and parcel of uh election season in thailand uh it's going to be very fluid as a journalist you ha- i have to be nimble and also at the same time uh, you have to be very cautious in processing information uh you really have to do the digging to make sure that what you are reading and what you are uh you know reporting is in fact uh accurate so look this is going to be a fascinating story for the next few weeks and we'll definitely be covering it closely as you heard Bavan will be there on the ground with other members of our team and we'll just continue to watch it very closely as that March 24 election date draws closer. So let's talk about Pattaya now. Tom, you recently went there and it has a fairly well-known reputation for its red light district and sex industry, but you actually went there to explore the Russian community. I'm really curious what sparked your interest in that and uh, what did you find? Yeah, so I was in Pattaya, which is a um a coastal city about 2 hours southeast of Bangkok. Uh it's a, sh- a short drive and it's become a a booming tourism destination over the years. But there was a story throughout last year in fact where uh some Russians and a Belarusian girl got arrested for running sex seminars. And there was this one this one woman Anastasia Vazhukovich who had a a social media profile she was all over Instagram she was a very very russian looking uh you know attractive glamorous model and she was arrested and deported last year for being a sex trainer and so this story took off you know there was all in the headlines it's obviously salacious uh if her nickname of being a belarusian sex trainer wasn't salacious enough she also claimed to have inside information about how russian operatives swung the 2016 presidential election in the US in favor of Donald Trump. And so on the back of that story, I decided I would go down to Pattaya and speak to the real Russians of this city, renowned, infamous even for its red light district. But when I got there, I actually found a lot of people living normal, productive, decent lives. And the story I wrote and the the short film that we made while we were there tells their stories. Wow, Russians in Pattaya, what is such a large community of Russians doing in Thailand? Yeah, it's a, a funny story. I mean, it probably started to accelerate the Russian community and Russian arrivals about 20 years ago. Uh for a long time Russians would would holiday in in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. That was a famous uh resort city there. But Egypt became quite a turbulent place politically this, you know, in the years early years of this century and essentially the Russians diverted this well 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 worn route and ended up in Pattaya where their numbers increased 
not gradually, they increased, they increased uh, very quickly. Russian arrivals in Thailand went from less than 200,000 in 2006 to 1.7 million per year in 2013. And now that's, that's all of Thailand, but a lot of these Russians wound up in Pattaya. In fact, in 2013, there were 50,000 Russians on long-term visas living and registered in Pattaya. And it's, it's very visible when you go there. You can see Russian restaurants, Russian real estate agents, Russian language signs all over the place. So it is a, a, a vibrant, high, highly visible community that's a big part of life in Pattaya. Tom, you're telling me that there is a connection between the erstwhile Russian Tsar and uh, the Thai monarchy. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't know this. It's something that I found uh, when I got there. I guess you'd call it uh, deep background or sort of you know ancient history, if you like. If you go back to, to 1897, which is a long time ago, obviously, but there was a connection between the leaders of Thailand at the time, who was King Rama V, who was Siam back then, and he formed a very uh, warm personal relationship with Tsar Nicholas II, who was obviously in charge of Russia 120 years ago. And while I was in Pattaya, one of the people I spoke to was this, this young Russian Orthodox priest. There's two Russian Orthodox churches in Pattaya, which also surprised me. And he produced this photo from 1897, which showed the, the king of Siam in 1897 in the Russian court, just him and his retinue with the, the, the Russian court. And it's a remarkable, remarkable photo. You would never perhaps assume that they had these relationships at, at that level. And what became clear is that this warm personal friendship, this relationship between the two leaders was in large part responsible for the fact that Thailand was never colonized. The support of the, the Russian Tsar of the day meant that even while other European colonial powers were, were carving up Southeast Asia, Thailand was never colonized. And it's this Russian connection, if you like, that was a big part of that. So take us back to the present. How do Russians in Pattaya these days spend their time? Yeah, so I spoke to seven or eight Russians, in fact, or members of the Russian-speaking community. A couple of them were from former Soviet states, Belarus, Estonia. But as I mentioned, I, I spoke to this, this 27-year-old Russian priest in his church in, in northern Pattaya. I spoke to a 14-year-old girl who's training to become a professional tennis player. Uh, she's from Siberia, which gets to minus 20 degrees in winter, Celsius. Uh, so unsurprisingly, she, she much preferred uh, Pattaya to her, her hometown of Omsk, which is in a very remote part of, of Russia. I spoke to a woman who runs a Russian language kindergarten for all these little Russian kids who are, who are growing up in Pattaya and their parents still want them to learn about their, their native language and their, their native culture. Um, and actually, one of, the, one of the interviews that we did that I found most entertaining was with a guy called Mikhail Ilyin. And he showed up in Pattaya 25 years ago. And his first job was as the manager of the first Russian restaurant in Pattaya. And he eventually started a tour company, basically selling day trips and activities to his various Russian customers. And he became so successful that he built his own office in Pattaya and opened another Russian restaurant, a tavern, on the ground floor. And we're going to hear from him now. In, uh, in, in the middle of 90s, it was about no over than uh, 50 Russians people living in Pattaya. And we, everybody know each other. 
Sometimes we meet together, sometimes we drink together, sometimes we fight together. It was all like small village. Now it's, everything is gone. In 2013, I have heard that uh, official statistic of registered local expats was about 50,000. Because uh, uh, in, 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 in the same time when it was tourist boom, it was uh, developers boom in Pattaya too. And Russians buy thousands of uh, condos here in Pattaya, thousands. I heard from one uh, famous real estate owner that he, his average volume was five condos per day. That sounds like rapid development. Tom, is, is Pattaya segregated? Uh, are the condominiums, you know, uh, at the same place as the red light district? It's definitely a little bit separated. Um, the red light district, which is enormous, is this sprawling, uh, I guess it's kind of the size of two or three normal-sized neighbourhoods. And it does go for, 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 for several blocks of just bars and, and, and strip clubs and whatnot. And that's definitely, it's definitely popular with the tourists, uh, if you go there on any given night, it's uh, humming with activity. There's tons of people walking around, drinking. It's you know a particular scene in Thailand that if anyone's been there, they'll they'll recognise. But for those people who are living there, at least the ones who I spoke to, they were very eager to stress that that's not where they hang out. They they live, I guess, on the outskirts of town, away from the kind of busiest parts of of the beach road, and. I mean, there was a young guy who's a, a former boxer who was working in a in a fight club, and I I was asking him about, you know, do you go out? Do you go to Walking Street? Is that is that what you do? And he just he was bemused. He you know he'd been living there for three years. He's got a got a fiance. He's quite settled down. He trains in the mornings and 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 works out and has a job, and he just couldn't believe that everyone assumed that if you live in Pattaya, you spend all your time at, at strip clubs and on and on Walking Street. So I think there is definitely a, a bright line between where the tourists go, the tourists who are there to drink and party and stay out all night, and the people who have been there for, for years, you know, three years or, or 25 years in the case of Mikhail Ilyin, who we heard from. The people who live there, they don't, they're not interested in that side of Pattaya. How integrated are the Russians with the Thai community? I mean, they, with the people you spoke to, did they, did they speak Thai? Did they marry Thais or, you know? It definitely varied. Yeah. It varied. Um, I mean, the thing that you've got to remember about Thailand is that if you open a business in Thailand and you're a foreigner, if you're not a Thai national, you need to have a Thai partner. Like you need, you need a local to, to come on board and help you register that business. So any kind of foreign investment in Thailand of foreigners opening businesses, it's some element of cooperation and integration is guaranteed because... They need a Thai partner on the books. Um, but I don't know that they all speak Thai. That's, that was something that maybe surprised me a little bit. The younger, the younger people, like the 14-year-old girl who was a tennis player, she spoke good Thai. She would be on the court helping her coach translate back and forth between English, Russian, and Thai. So that was, that was quite impressive. But also, some of them spoke not a word of Thai, which surprised me a little bit. It definitely varied, but at the ones running businesses, some of them have Thai staff, um, but the Russians, I think they do, they do like to, to have a bit of a community, as we heard. Uh, Mikhail Ilyin has a, a Russian restaurant. Most of his customers were Russians who were either living there or long-term tourists. There's definitely an appetite for them to, to use Russian businesses and 
Russian restaurants and a Russian church, Russian kindergarten. So while there is a level of integration with the ties, clearly there's also an appetite for, for the home comforts as well. Tom, a lot of these stories were really positive about people leading pretty thriving lives in Pattaya. Did so, all the people you speak to have such positive stories to tell? No, that's not, that's not entirely the case. Certainly, uh, most of the people who I spoke to who were living there, they spoke glowingly of Pattaya. They loved it. It's their home. They had no plans to leave. But I definitely didn't want to paint an overly sanitized picture of Pattaya either. It's got a reputation for its sex industry and its red light district. It's infamous even within Thailand. And it's got that reputation for a reason. That red light district around Walking Street, around the beach, is enormous. And I did speak to a, to a girl who had come from Russia. She was working as a, as a dancer in uh, one of the go-go bars in Walking Street. And she painted a far bleaker picture of her life there. She had never been overseas before. And she came to Pattaya hoping to earn money. And the way that she told it, she just felt trapped. She's working six nights a week in a go-go bar. The work was putting into a into putting her into a pit of depression, and she couldn't wait to leave. So, certainly there were some positive stories, but we should be under no illusions that there is this thriving sex industry, and some of it's pretty seedy, and it's highly visible. If you go there and you go to the right areas, you can't miss it. So, Tom, you went there with a film crew. Uh, where can listeners find the articles you wrote and the films you made while you were there? SCMP.com. Everything's online already. I did a story about the Russian community, which we've been talking about today, but I also wrote about Chinese tourists in Pattaya. Both those pieces are online and the videos are embedded. Wow, Tom, that might be the first film in Pattaya involving an Australian that I would want to watch. Yeah, well, you can find it at scmp.com. So that's all from us today at the Asia Briefing. Bavan, Megan... Thanks for being with me today for our Thailand special. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Where can people follow you on Twitter and how do they find your work? I'm on Twitter at uh, handle jbhavan and I will be in, in Bangkok and uh, around Thailand during the Thai election. So uh, follow me uh, on Twitter and on scmp.com. Well, guys, I don't tweet. I'm just a lurker, but you can find my work under Megan Tobin on the website as well. So don't forget to check out the work of Bhavan, Megan and the entire SCMP Asia Desk on scmp.com. We're filing around the clock, from around the region, and around the world. And we, of course, will be following the Thai election very closely. And if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review. We'll see you next month for another Asia Briefing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.